You're listening to the Practical Astrophotography Podcast, where you are an absolute beginner with a smartphone, DSLR, or a seasoned professional with one-shot color dedicated camera. You will find the tools, techniques, and advice needed to take your passion to the next level. If you're looking to improve your imaging skills, get insight from seasoned professionals, or hear stories of how others have started their astrophotography journey, you are in the right spot. As you know, Dennis, we like to have conversations with people who are interested in all things astronomy and imaging. So on today's podcast, we have Alex Curry, who is a co-founder of Telescope Live and currently resides in Sicily, where he studies medicine at the University of Messina. Welcome, Alex, and thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, no worries. It's nice, nice, to, uh, nice to speak with you guys. So there's Telescope Live. There's at least three or four other um, competitors in that area. What made you want to start a uh, remote telescope service? I mean, honestly speaking, it wasn't... And necessarily to be a competitor with these other facilities, we wanted to make a kind of autonomous system of telescopes that are sort of intelligent in their own way. Um, and that's what we achieved. And then carrying it forward as, a, as an actual product that people can, can use, you know, we have a, a cloud-based system. So we have tons and tons of storage. Uh, I think recently we hit our 150,000th image that we've acquired through through our scopes. And so, so with this, you know, we thought, okay, this is a great idea for people to be able to have access to. We've got all this data, thousands of hours of, of observations. It developed from there, really. We worked more on the algorithms for uh, automation and, and scheduling. And this this really, I think, kind of put us a bit above the, the other competition out there and that we can handle lots of data all at once. We can handle lots of different observations um, and, and sort of provide a, a much cleaner and smoother experience compared to sort of the old days of submitting a request uh, and then someone manually schedules that with a telescope. Some of our telescopes and systems haven't been touched for, for well over a year. And so that's uh, kind of a, uh, trying to bring this, this hobby, this you know, remote imaging up to the 21st century, really. Which it's a great idea because you you have a lot of startup costs in imaging when you first start up. I mean, mm-hmm. you got to buy a decent mount, so you're talking two, three thousand dollars. Then you got to buy a decent scope, a uh, decent camera, and then all your peripherals. So you're talking anywhere from three to six, seven thousand dollars to get set up. And with with your service, you can pay ten, fifteen, twenty dollars a month and um, and schedule time on the telescope, and then get that exactly get that image, and then uh, go ahead and process it and and you're kind of saving yourself a lot of money. But there's a lot of people that do like to do the acquisition. I know Dennis, um, he likes to do the acquisition, but not so much the uh, the processing. Uh, maybe not because it's it's not something fun to do, but because he doesn't have the time and reserve. So I do like the acquisition part, and I do like to be able to process. I just don't have a lot of time once I get finished with the acquisition. And I was just looking through some of the things that you have posted online. Now, you have an archive of data already available for people? Yeah, exactly. So the, this is the 150,000 images we have uh, is kind of this accessible data that that's, we run and add to continually. Okay. Um, and so our subscribers have instant access to, to all of this data. Um, and, you know, it runs, uh, the average cost is about... 50 cents per hour of data that you acquire from this from this archive the thing that we're trying to work on to just touch on what you said about uh you know taking the sort of easy route through acquisition i mean yeah granted uh, i don't think we're trying to compete with the your own home observatory in in any way whatsoever uh, myself i have you know tons of telescopes and that i that i really enjoy using myself but really we position ourselves as something different in addition to what you can do at home. It definitely looks that way. Mm. Um, you know, when I see some of the data that you're collecting and then it looks like you also, um, you know, you can use the images and they're good quality images. In terms of use of the images, when you're going to say, if I'm going to log on and and, and download some images, if I wanted to use those to create some astrophotography images or put together some stuff, are there stipulations? Are there requirements? You know, I can say that this data was acquired from here, but I've processed it or some other specifics for use. The, the only sort of limitation we, we have is that you can't share the, the raw 
monochromatic FITS files. Your final image output that you create, you can monetize that, you can post it any way you like, really. And the one thing is, it, it's now kind of mandatory, is that you say you acquired the, teles the data with Telescope Live. Um, reason being is because we've, we've come across situations where people are entering contests with our data. Uh, with our with images created from our data and they try and pass it off as their own and of course you know if you're someone that's working very hard from your back garden you take the time to process this data and the person you're up against is someone who's got data from a you know dark sky site in chile it makes it very very difficult for these people to uh, to have a fair competition in, in com competitions things like that this is this is one of the things we say is that you know of course we're more than happy for you to share the output, but it's to be to be honest with people that you've acquired your data from a remote facility for kind of transparency reasons for, for that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's very important. And because it takes so much time. If you're if you're somebody in your backyard, you gotta take all that, you gotta have knowledge of your own abilities to be able to set up your telescope, polar align it, you gotta be able to know the exposure lengths and you gotta be able to know the gain and different settings of your camera. So it's a, exactly, yeah. a whole different ball game and it's kind of one of those sayings in computer world garbage in garbage out but if you got spectacular data that's being collected on a, a 24 inch telescope at uh Bortle one or Bortle two skies and it's all polar aligned and and set up about half of the equations already completed for you you just got to be able to do the the other half and exactly which yeah. is not it's not easy i mean part of it i mean i can teach somebody to do imaging in probably 30 45 minutes but the hard part is actually the second half trying to actually take that image and make it into something that's um, enjoyable and kind of gives the idea of what the object is with your processing. So now you you started off, did you start off with um, scopes in Spain first and then you jumped to Chile and Australia? Yeah, kind of. So we, we started actually with uh, like a 16 inch RC scope in, in Spain and a, it was a 14 inch Mead in Australia. To begin with, and this was the, the kind of like research scopes. So they weren't particularly high quality, but they were they were good enough for us to run our, our testing on. And eventually, this developed into the, the sort of the we, we switched to the Takahashi that we have in Australia now, and we switched to another Takahashi in in Spain. And at the same time, we acquired the twenty four inch and in Chile, and that made up the the first network. Uh, and then we've been adding to it ever since. And I think we've got about 11 scopes now uh, in total, all different sort of optics and uh, uh, different you know, optic designs, different focal lengths, uh, refractors as well. So we've got a nice selection that, that people can, can choose from. Are any of your telescopes wide field um, astrophotography scopes or are they more deep sky? Yeah, I mean, uh, we've got a good mix of two, honestly. Uh, the the sort of the widest field of view we have, I believe, is in the maybe like 10, 15 degree range, and that's with a, a Sigma lens that we have in Chile. Uh, and it's, it's everything's monochrome. We use monochrome for everything, uh, all FLI cameras uh, for, for this purpose. But the, the, the Takahashi's uh, image are about five degrees. And then the, the reflectors, I uh, know we have a, a 50 centimeter ASA telescope, Newtonian. And I think that image is about uh, one to two degrees in field of view. So there's, there's, there's a good range in focal length, I think uh, the longest focal length we have is probably a, the six, seven meter uh, focal length, and that's on the one meter scope that we have in Chile. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Takahashi's are a good middle ground, about five degrees, um, and so you can do some nice work with those as well. Very nice. Uh, especially if, you know, with the one in the, in the southern hemisphere, one in the northern hemisphere, so we, we can, you know, get most targets, really. So going back to your um, bio, you're studying medicine, but you mentioned that you started these for research purposes. Is that was that for like a hobby, or is that part of your education, or what was that? Um, what was involved with that? No, not so much education. Uh, I was kind of working part time during uh, during my first degree, uh, and at the time, the, the this company that myself and Marco were working for, uh, they needed someone who was familiar with kind of amateur astrophotography. Marco's uh, education is in astronomy research, specifically ex exoplanets. And then he had someone who was a kind of an astrophotographer, amateur astrophotographer. Uh, so that's how I got involved. Um, and then, then we went from there and uh, I finished my degree. I continued working. 
with with Telescope Live, and then we we took it, kind of made it a public uh, publicly accessible company at that point. And then I moved into to medicine to to study. Uh, so that's what I'm doing now. So you've always been interested in imaging and, and amateur astronomy and such. Yeah, absolutely. It was my my father got me interested when I was very young. I think maybe was ten or eleven years old. As soon as you kind of can understand, you know how how a telescope works, how you know you find things in the night sky. That's that's when I was first hooked. Uh, you know, he showed me with uh, it was a, an eight inch Celestron at the time, uh, eight inch Cassegrain, and we you know we looked at Jupiter and Saturn one evening, and I was I was hooked instantly. Uh, I was like, uh, you know, wow, I can't believe these are, you know, these, they actually exist. You see them on the TV, but no, they're actually real things. Um, then I made the progression into astrophotography, maybe a few years later, and uh, kind of spiraled out of control from there, really. Which it usually does. Now, how long have you been imaging for? Uh, ooh, I'd say probably 10, 12 years in total. So I'm 26 now. Uh, I guess I would have started when I was about 14 or 15. So about 12 years. And when you first started out, what did you, you mentioned the, the scope that your father had. What did you, what was your first uh, imaging experience? Were you using digital? Were you, was it still back in, well, it probably wouldn't be in the back in the film era. But. No, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was DSLR that I used. Uh, I had a, it wasn't anything fancy. It was just like the family uh, Sony, I think it was like a A20, something like that, one of the basic cameras. And uh, we bought a, a T-ring adapter screwed that back on on the back of the celestron scope we had and uh, took some rather poor images of jupiter and saturn uh and i think not some not too much later um i was on my own one evening so i took the scope out and i i took my first image of of the orion nebula which i was very proud of it had the very typical features of the sort of first orion image very tiny sort of splodge in the middle um and yeah, that was that was the, with DSLR, and then from there, I I did some more playing with the DSLR, more more playing with processing using Photoshop, things like that, stacking in particular to get my head around, and and then we went to I moved to to a sort of better DSLR. We bought a Canon DSLR, used that for a while, uh, and then made the investment into into a mono rig, uh, and I've been shooting mono one shot color as well. I used for a bit a couple of years back. Uh, but now, now I'm back on mono. So you have pretty good uh, Bordeaux skies, then? Uh, yeah, I'd say in the UK, uh, at my my sort of family home, it's uh, Bordeaux three, Bordeaux four, or, or on on those boundaries. Uh, we're quite lucky to live in the countryside, uh, uh, away from any major towns or cities. Uh, but in in Sicily, where I live, uh, my balcony is only south facing, uh, and I, it's a Bordeaux five. Maybe six. There's a lot of development going on in the area at the moment, which is unfortunate. But I mean, it's 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 manageable. I think, in my personal experience, bottle five, bottle six, is kind of the the limit of where things still are easier. You don't have so much to deal with uh, huge amounts of light pollution at that point. And yeah, so for me, me for me, it's not a, not a problem. And it also probably uh, dictates as to going from a. From a DSLR to a mono, if you don't have good skies and the mm -hmm. uh, good transparency, it doesn't really do much good to have a mono. You're spending more time trying to collect data to get your to finish your data set than you are just going out and doing a one shot color. Now, do you when you started off with a Sony as a pair to Canon, did you did you see any big differences between using Sony or Canon? Um, mainly, mm, it's hard to say. I can't quite remember. I, I know when we moved to the Canon, it was. Uh, a significantly better sensor. The noise uh, noise level was was greatly reduced. But I, I I wouldn't say necessarily this pins on a Sony versus Canon um, sort of comparison. It was more down to the fact that the Sony camera that we had to begin with, I think, was a fairly small sensor, um, and then the the Canon sensor was was much much larger. So in terms of increasing the the field of view and the, the the quality of the the images that I got from that camera, um, for for at the time I was super impressed. Um, the, the the next jump was when we we bought a, a CCD, and that was one of the Moravian cameras, uh, and that was a, a big investment at the in the, at the time because it's, you know, you're really committing to the hobby at this point. You know, you're no longer 
using a DSLR, which you can easily use for, for anything else. You're, you're saying, okay, this is a camera that I am going to commit to this telescope. Uh, at the same time, we changed from a C8 to C11, and we got our first refractor. I think it was a 100 millimeter fact, refractor from TS Optics. Um, and that was, yeah, game changing. You've, you're going from difficulty in, in trackers. The, the issue we have in the UK is, is the, the, the seeing isn't great. So tracking with such a long focal length on, on the reflector. And at the time we weren't too educated about, say, uh, the, uh, I think it's the hyperstar attachment that, that converts the, uh, Schmidt Cassegrain's down to, uh, like much faster F ratio. Yeah. F2 um, yeah, similar. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, you know, using the, the, uh, refractor, the TS optics refractor at the time, that was, you know, amazing. We started actually producing images that we're proud of. Um, and then, yeah, now, now we've, we've, well, I say recently, it's within the last five years, we, we bought a proper observatory. Uh, we have, uh, a peer, you know, uh, ASA mount, and we're using a 130 millimeter refractor as well, which uh, I'm incredibly happy with. It works great for the skies that we have, but uh, I always, you know, we always want want to do more. We always want to try and edge out as best as best best as uh, uh, image as you can from the skies that you have. You know, if we go for a Takahashi 150 or 130. You know, in in those clear, clear, super steady nights in in the winter in the UK, might we be able to get that ever so slight edge compared to what we have now? That it's worth the investment for those super clear nights. Uh, so this is something uh, I chatted with the guys at uh, the San Jose from Imaging Conference this weekend, and just uh, you know, try and determine is it is it something that's really worth the upgrade? Uh, of course, they they told me yes, um, but uh, I'll need to go away and uh, do some more reading about people. There's some people in, in the area that I live in that have any kind of similar experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think the manufacturers will always tell you it's worth the upgrade because it's it's kind of helping and patting their pocketbook. Book, but. Of course. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think I think the Takahashi guys, they're very honest and upfront about the limits of their, uh, of, you know, they wouldn't try. And uh, I mean, this one guy I was talking to in particular, he said, considering the quality of the skies, he said the 130 is probably plenty even though he probably could have sold me on the 150 um so i don't know it's it's one of those things i think a lot of people in this uh, in this industry and in this hobby they're quite open and they're they're more than willing to help you to to find a solution that fits you um you know it's a very friendly community in that sense when you're looking at you mentioned a little earlier um, about using monochrome images. Now, mm. the skies here in in the upstate New York area are pretty uh, difficult to work with, and obviously we're always teasing out looking for those one or two nights a year. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I've opted for a one-shot color camera, saying mm -hmm. that, well, I only get a limited time of observing, um, and so I'm going to use that one-shot color rather than go for that monochrome camera and working through my set of filters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, any thoughts on doing that, or how do you feel about those types of cameras uh, comparatively? I, I think now, especially with, with the, the CMOS uh, one-shot colors, um, and especially when, I mean, uh, the one that I, the example I, I purchased for myself was the uh, ZWO, uh, 533 MC Pro and that was I mean I still use it we we've got it uh, attached to a telescope in the sort of family holiday home um and I, I love that camera I think it's brilliant I use it with the Optolon filters mm -hmm. and even uh when I had it with my sort of smaller telescope in Sicily I got some great results from that just uh even in the the more light polluted skies uh, and I think I think that in in you know where you say where you're limited on time, I think they they definitely make up, uh, you know, for a lot of you know it makes things a lot faster. You can acquire you know you're acquiring three channels at once. You use a good uh, dual narrowband filter, you can you can get some fantastic images with them. Uh, the only reason I went back to mono, uh, and this is I did the same in in Sicily, is because. For for me personally, I I want to work in just narrowband. So I I felt that it was more reasonable for me to buy a camera that 
can capture much better H-alpha and uh, O3 and S2 data uh, compared to the, the dual uh, narrowband filters with the one-shot. Um, and at the time when I looked at the cameras, the, the camera that I was eyeing up, it had uh, I found a good good one that was um, well-priced for me. The center size was good. Uh, and so I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll just go for it. I had uh, some um, astronomic filters already from a from an old mono camera, and so so I I bought it and yeah, I've really I've really enjoyed using it. I agree with you. I mean, from my experience, I, I sometimes feel like I get less imaging time because I have to focus on a target for for twice the time. Effectively, you know, you spend one hour in HF or one hour in O3, and then you move on to the, the next hour, the next evening or, or however much time you have. Right. Whereas in uh, with the one shot color, I'd spend the full two hours on, on one image. And sure, people say that the, you know, you're reducing the sensitivity of the camera because you, you know, using one set of pixels for red, one set for blue, one set for green. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's true, but uh, I, I'm very, my approach to astrophotography is quite laid back, you know. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I'm myself, not for Telescope Live. For Telescope Live, obviously, we try and, we try and achieve the best quality uh, data. But for myself, I'm happy if I, especially from a Bortle 5, Bortle 6 sky, if my image looks um, comparative to something that I may have actually captured with a narrowband camera. And since the majority of stuff I just post on Instagram anyway, with the compression, added compression, it uh, you know it barely makes it noticeable for my eye anyway. Okay. If I post it on Flickr and stuff like that, my my narrowband work from my 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 own personal telescopes is is, is far superior. Sure, I mean it's uh, there's no doubt about it. But for for one shot, I mean I love one shot. I may even go back to one shot in the future. Um, in terms of using some of the data from Telescope Live, do you mm -hmm. find yourself combining some of the data that you collect on Telescope Live with some of the personal data, or do you have uh, members who use, uh, let's say, I have my one-shot color camera here, and but I'd really like to get some narrow band. Do you have people that combine the two sets of data? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just just the other day, I was talking to to a customer of ours, and uh, he was asking me, you know. How do you feel about this? I said, "Oh, I said it. It's great, really. This is the 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 exact purpose of of what we offer. It's it's to be able to have access to high quality data that you can use in whatever way you want. You know, if you want to enhance your image with uh, narrowband data from our scopes, then that's superb. Or or vice versa. You know, if you if you're imaging in a light polluted skies and you only shoot uh, in narrowband and you want some RGB data, we have that too. So." You know, it's a, it's a great balance for for, for that kind of thing. Uh, personally, I mean, I image a lot of the Northern Hemisphere from my own scopes. And then obviously with the telescopes we have in Chile and Australia, I, I get the opportunity to see a completely different night sky, completely sit in a different set of targets that I, that I, I, you know, always am downloading data from. So as in, uh, from the point of view of combining, no, not really, because uh, I'm I'm shooting monochrome, and sometimes I I can you know spend longer on a project. I, I'm not so again I'm quite laid back about these kind of things. I don't necessarily uh, mind spending numerous nights on a, on a target. So okay. for me, for me, I, I don't really combine data that much. I have tried before for for galaxy work and stuff like that. There's uh, it's always uh, interesting to see you know how much difference uh, set from Telescope Live can enhance your own data. Um, yeah, no, there's, there's people out there that do it. And, you know, we're more than, as a company, we're more than happy for, more than welcoming to see people do that too. So when I'm taking a look um, at some of the data too, I also noticed that you do tutorials. Um, now, yeah. do you work on specific tutorials with just the Telescope Live data? Do you work with um, just processing um, I see that you're using PixInsight or Photoshop, <laughs> or do you use both? And do you have a preference? Uh, yeah. So, so personally, I'm a. I've, I used to be a hardcore PixInsight user, uh, and now I've moved to a kind of a hybrid, hybrid user. So I use a, a combination of PixInsight, Photoshop, and uh, Affinity Photo by Serif. And I love all three pieces of software. Really, once once you get into them, and once you understand them. Yeah, I love them, and this this is something that uh, we're trying to reflect in 
in the tutorials, which uh, we have tutorials hosted by uh, ourselves and then tutorials uploaded by the community as well. And we're not so much restrictive on whether it should be, you know, telescope live data. Of course, it's it's preferred and is kind of encouraged because it ties into the people who are learning from these plat pla uh, learning from this platform. They they want to be able to, you know, use data that that is on the platform already to to kind of add to it from uh, data from the platform. But yeah, it's it's a mixture of uh, tutorials on there. I think we've got them all for um, Photoshop. Uh, Affinity Photo, Pixinsight, of course, is is the big one. Uh, GIMP, Cyril, uh, Deep Sky Stacker. We 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 have many many different uh, examples on there, and I think we're trying to, you know, trying to get more people to say, look, there isn't much, you know, to be honest, there isn't much out there in terms of processing, um, and it can often be difficult to find examples of how to do pretty obscure stuff. Uh, so we, we're trying to encourage people to create these tutorials to, to show people how they've overcome these challenges. Um, and this is something that our, our ambassadors and tutors do, uh, such as uh, like Peter Jenkins, Adam Block, they, uh, Nick Simonick as well. They upload these fantastic tutorials to our platform, showcasing you know, what can actually be done uh, with our data. And you know, we've seen people follow these tutorials and you know, they say it, it's changed their um, they've changed their workflow completely, and they've been able to acquire, uh, be able to create much better data, uh, much better images. And the same applies to your own data that you produce at home. You know, people people say, you know, I didn't just use this for telescope live data; it also worked for my own data. And it's kind of that's kind of the the point. We want to enhance astronomy as a whole, not just be remote imaging. It's amazing. We've we've met people at Black Forest Star Party and at Cherry Springs Star Party up in Cherry Springs State Park in Pennsylvania. And there's some people that strictly use nothing but Pixinsight. And there's other people that we've seen that their work is just amazing. And you ask them what they're using and they say Photoshop. They're not using anything other than Photoshop. And it's amazing to see just the quality of work that can be done in just Photoshop. So a lot of people think you need to have Pixinsight to be a to take your uh, work to the next step, but you really, it's a lot, it's amazing that people can still use Photoshop and they know it in and out and they know it like the back of their hand <laughs> and they can produce images, in my mind, sometimes that rival people that use Pixinsight to process. Yeah, I mean, I think I think from my own experience, Pixinsight has this uh, kind of mathematical approach to it, which I, which I really enjoy. It's very, you know, uh, very logical and, um, you know, kind of numbers approach to it in certain aspects. And Pixinsight is very much an artistic software. Um, and so, you know, if you're someone that, that, that enjoys that side of Photoshop, you know, you can do amazing things with it. Uh, Nick, for example, uh, Simonic, a good friend of mine and uh, astrophotographer from the UK, he, he does fantastic work with Photoshop, like incredible, better than I could ever produce with, uh, with Pixinsight and Photoshop combined. And yeah, I think it's one of those things that once you overcome a, a complication or you overcome a challenge that you face in astrophotography, whichever software you you use, you can do it in, and then you know it takes your images to to another level. And so, so yeah, I mean, I I'm I can I'm sometimes blown away with the the stuff that I see come out of Photoshop. Now I see that you also uh, offer some contests on Telescope Live. Can you tell tell us a little about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So we have uh, at the moment we have like a monthly rolling contest um, in that users of our platform submit images that they've acquired through that month. Sometimes we have a, a theme. So sometimes it can be galaxies. Sometimes it can be nebulae, and they submit these images. And our panel of uh, judges, who are all professional astrophotographers and astronomers. They they come together and they decide on a winner and the winner it wins uh, credits uh, membership benefits that kind of stuff. Um, but recently and this is something that's that's quite new um, coming from us. We're going to start a a more generalized astrophotography competition that will take entries from uh, outside of Telescope Live, and we want to be able to sponsor this kind of thing to say, look, this is. You know, we want a competition that encompasses the whole field of astrophotography. Um, and we're going to look at it from less of a, an artistic point of view and more from a 
astronomical merit and so the the judges won't be uh won't be artists but they'll be astrophotographers astronomers scientists things like that um and, and that's something that we have in the work at the moment and we'll be kind of announcing uh formally for entrance later down the line pretty exciting yeah it's exciting stuff what are your thoughts um i i notice a lot on uh Instagram and Flickr and other, mm. uh, even on Astro Ben and some other sites that a lot of people take a lot more artistic, um, license with their images and they tweak things and they give mm -hmm. them a, a little bit of a, for lack of a better word, out of this world, um, coloring. Mm. What are your thoughts as far as people that tend to do more artsy, uh, processing and then, then submit their images to social media and it kind of gives people a false sense of like reality and what it really mm. truly looks like in the night sky. I mean, here's the issue. I I, uh, I don't remember if you came across this uh, back with Neowise. There was uh, a bit of a uh, online uh, argument, let's say, of where someone had highlighted the tail features by hand with like a pen tool in Photoshop. And uh, I think this one, an, an APOD or, or something like that, and someone highlighted the fact that this wasn't actually real and the, the person who submitted it got into you know a bit of uh, hot water with the, the community um and while i think the artistic side of stuff definitely has its own merit you know people people who want to exaggerate certain features of 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 a comet or a nebula or something like that sure that's fine you know uh, it's uh you know free speech let's say um but I don't think you can call it astrophotography at that point. At that point, it's art. From a from an astrophotography point of view, I I like to keep things in a in a from a more purist kind of point of view, in that you know I don't want to misrepresent something as something that it's not. Uh, you know, especially when it comes to the coloring of images, I don't want to necessarily display something that that's misleading. You know, I, I I think as as far as my opinion is concerned, you know, that the amount of the, the, the furthest I would go with kind of an artistic license would be in choosing Hubble palette over uh, sort of the standard, you know, red imaging, uh, red, uh, red color for, for hydrogen alpha. And while sure, these, this might not be accurate in itself, it's, it's still, I'm not tweaking the data in a way that misrepresents you know what the object and the structure and the balancing of of the the colors and whatnot represent i like to keep things kind of sure astrophotography is 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 an art form in itself but it, i like to keep that scientific aspect of this is a representation of what this target actually is um and so when people paint over stuff add stuff i think it, it kind of ruins that scientific merit and you know people go to, to great expense and uh, you know great time lengths to to acquire this data through their telescope which is you know really a scientific instrument um and then to, to alter it in that way it's kind of uh to me it's disappointing you know it's uh it could it can be misunderstood by by people of uh, people uh in the public who aren't necessarily into astronomy and astrophotography as as uh, as we are and they just you know they just like pretty space pictures and they see something and it's um yeah it's it's a, it's a shame but i think if you identify it as art and say this is an art piece you know when people do paintings of of nebula and galaxies you know that kind of artwork i think that's that's great it's really cool stuff but you know it's not they're not trying to pass it off as an actual image of, of space uh and so yeah from that point of view i like to keep things on the the scientific side but but you know not not too seriously yeah I, I agree with you and i think you put it in a in a very good light and the thing is is i think people need to put up front and make it known very clearly that it is a composition or it is a false colored mm -hmm. image and it doesn't necessarily reflect scientific data it more reflects their personal imaging and their personal likes because i've seen photos um and i did see that neowise that you mentioned and there was quite the discussion online yeah. and there was quite some heated discussion, but I've seen some images of like Orion where people pull out and it's like a very purplish, very purple hue color. And it just, 
yeah. it does. It gives a lot of people the sense that when they look through a telescope, that's what they're going to see. And when you do look through a telescope mm-hmm. and you don't see that, people are very disappointed. And I think we've, Dennis and I have done outreach and, and through different astronomy clubs, we've seen people that look at things and they're like, oh, that's so disappointing. And But they're looking at pictures of like Hubble or they're looking online at NASA images. Yeah, and exactly. And there's just a different sense of what's actual real and, and what's actual uh, fiction. So. Yeah, very true. You know, I think that, but also using that astrophotography in that outreach and to reach out to community and to people who don't know what's out there is certainly outstanding. Now, I have to have to say, you know, my first shot of the Orion Nebula, uh, I certainly made purple and it was exciting. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, and so it was, it was now that I take a look at, back at my steps of going through and seeing what an actual image is and some of those steps are. Uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it, I, I also agree, you know, that you need to be very clear as to this is what I did, this is how I processed it. And you do the same thing with people, is that your eyes have limitations. Um, mm-hmm. So the camera makes up for some of those limitations, and this is our best understanding or representation of what we have based on the data we collect. And obviously, exactly. better data gives you a better picture. So, mm-hmm. uh, And it's always exciting to be able to get some kind of outstanding data from Telescope Live, uh, you know that that really, really is very exciting to me. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I I agree. The in terms of outreach, you know, what you see through the eyepiece isn't what you see in the images, and uh, you know, I, I hate to 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 not 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 uh, sort of uh, play down visual astronomy, but uh, I think there's a lot of false, uh, not false information, but kind of a over-exaggeration that you see through uh, social media and stuff that people say, you know, this is this is what I see through my telescope. And it's like, well, not really. This is what your camera sees. If you if you look down the, you know, through a telescope, it's it's much, much less uh, impressive the majority of the time, unless you're looking at planets, Orion, or, or sometimes, you know, like clusters and stuff. It's It can be a bit, uh, a bit disappointing to people who don't understand the difference between the imaging and the visual side of things. So if you think back to when you first started, what what would you say was your largest struggle um, when you got started? Was it getting information, getting help? Was it getting the proper equipment? I mean, I've, I've been, I'm lucky enough that my, my father has a big passion for astronomy as well. And, you know, he's a very busy person. So unfortunately, he doesn't always have the time to, uh, to, to partake in the hobby. But he's, he's very supportive of, of both of us you know, um, acquiring equipment, let's say, um, together and, and working on, on you know, making our own personal setup uh, more advanced, let's say. Uh, to begin with, I'd say it would be definitely information. This is this was a huge problem. Um, you know, we're talking the sort of, uh, when would it have been the mid, uh, like 2010, around then, uh, you know, the amount of information we have now on, on how to, take a photo of the night sky is vastly more and superior to what we had back then you know back then it's it was a kind of a an issue of well i need to figure out how to polar align the thing first this is something i read about but i i can't for the life of me figure out how right and so you keep going through forums you go through you know try and find a video or something on youtube and it's sort of not great and that that was definitely the the, the thing to that was kind of a big issue was, was getting going. I think once you understand how the telescope works itself, how you polar line, how you, you know, you get your camera into a mode to take long exposures from there, it's just playing, you know, you're just trying to figure out the limits of your equipment, how things work, how you go about processing stuff. And again, the same issue with processing when you take that, that image into, into Photoshop or, at the time it was Photoshop, it's kind of like, well, what do I do now? I've uh, managed to figure out how to stack the, these images, but, but what do I do with them? And of course, now there's, there's tons of information on, on image processing and tons of examples, for example, on, on our platform. <laughs> um, but from a sense of, you know, getting started back then to now, it's, it's a lot easier going. It's still difficult, don't get me wrong. It's very, it can be very frustrating when in the middle of the night things don't go the way you expected them to, or, you know, you, you read plenty around the subject and then it didn't work. It's, it can be frustrating. Um, but particularly now there's tons of information out there, which is, which is really, really great. 
I think people nowadays are spoiled. Um, they have so much um, information, actually information overload, and it's, sometimes it's it's tough to know what's, yeah. what to actually believe or what is actual fact as, as opposed to like how to do something or how to process or how to set up your mm-hmm. scope. When I started 25 years ago, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have, um, well, we had sky and telescope and astronomy, and we mainly had mm-hmm. books. You had to buy books, and you'd go out at night with your camera and your tripod and and take photos and yeah. make logs yeah, and sure. logs and logs, and then go back and take your take your film to a one hour or twenty four hour photo lab and come back and see that you got nothing, and then you would repeat it the next night <laughs> and. We didn't have yeah. Photoshop. We didn't have all these pics in sight. I mean, basically what you took from your camera is what you got. So if you didn't expose it right, you didn't align it right, something, it was it was a lot more frustrating back then. And But I mean, nowadays it's, so how do you find the quality of content and the answers to questions online? Do you think there's a, because I've noticed on Facebook, Instagram, cloudy nights. There's a lot of people that are, they have good hearts. They truly want to help you, but they're just kind of spreading and they're just repeating what they've heard. Yeah. I, I this, this is a big problem. I see it a lot on, on Facebook, uh, in particular, where we have these, you know, large astro communities and people ask a question and they're either told that they're stupid. They're told that they, um, are doing something wrong, but no one really says how to fix it. Or someone just says something that's completely false altogether. You know, you read through this stuff, it's like, no, that's just, just not, not the way to go about it. They'd be much better off uh, going in this direction. And sometimes you have to go through a lot of comments in order to figure out, you know, what the actual right answer is, which can be frustrating. The same the same goes with with the sort of YouTube videos and tutorials. There's, there's, some, there's some creators that kind of I don't know. They they turn it into more of a of a drama. They over over dramatize things. They make things seem very flashy and uh, sometimes straightforward as well, which can be the the kind of um, frustrating things. Is when they say, "Ah, oh, you know, look, it's so easy. You just plop the tripod down and off you go." Um, and it's 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 really not like that in any in any sense. Uh, and so yeah, it can it could be a bit frustrating, but I think. I think when you're coming into the hobby, you find a community that is, you know, that, that, that fits well with what you want to do. You find those creators on, on YouTube or people that write uh, articles and stuff. You find the ones that, that, that work for you. It's again, it's a lot of trial and error. Yeah. Sometimes in, in the, in the personal, in the amateur hobby uh, sense, there's a lot of trial and error. So once you find someone that, you know, works well with what you're doing you know they have the same equipment as you or similar kind of equipment and you can understand then okay well this is what he does or, or she does and this is what i'm trying to do and you know you can tweak things and, and figure it out that way i'm a, i'm a big advocate for just you know get out there give it a go try stuff if it doesn't work you try something else you know you can read about it try it if it doesn't work you can try again um, and I think that's quite important. I think a lot of people want this kind of, you know, easy, easy way uh, to do stuff. And I mean, sure, that that's, you know, if that's what you want to do, then, you know, of course, you're more than free to do whatever you like. But I think the astronomy hobby in itself, it should be firstly, not taken too seriously. But also, you know, it's it's about figuring out problems and trying to, you know, figure out how to make things better in that sense. And it's tough enough trying to set up the equipment in the daylight and, and remembering all the equipment you need. And then you kind of compound that by being in the dark at night and you get it set up and you realize that you left your camera battery on your kitchen table and you're kind of like, (laughs) yeah, there goes my night. But yeah, it takes a different type of person to actually sit there and, and, um, and plan out and then not get frustrated because mm-hmm. we've all been there. I know Dennis has been there. Of you, course, yeah. You have a mount yeah. that's not it's not doing what you want it to do because you're not telling it what it should do and and uh mm-hmm. it's kind of you wanna pick it up and throw it through the window when you're midnight and, and you wanna go home and you're done with it and you wanna you wanna take a break for months at end and you get stru- frustrated, but there's a lot of there's a lot of uh oh how do I say it? There's a lot of um gratification that once you get things working mm-hmm. you can just sit back and actually like breathe 
and be like, all right, things are going good and, and it's very rewarding. So it's, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very, very, very true. And, but of course, as I'm looking at this, it's something that I didn't think about before is that when at that frustration level reaches that point or it comes to that night, my night doesn't have to be ruined. Telescope live. And I'm looking at it <laughs> yes. and, I, and I, I honestly did not think about it that way before, but saying, all right, well, I'd like to take this data and practice mm-hmm. these set of skills. Like you said, just pick it up and go ahead and really do something with it up here in the, the Western New York area and upstate New York. Uh, skies are limited. So I don't always get a lot of data and to be able to practice with some high resolution data um, at a very minimal to cost um, certainly is an, an exciting thing to do. I didn't really think about it that way and talking to you certainly. And then obviously you're also keeping it very practical, kind of like practical mm-hmm. astrophotography. You know, I like being part of that community to say, exactly. hey, um, you have to try some things. It's very difficult to sort through the, the tons of data and tutorials out there and mm-hmm. people just repeating things. And we want to be part of that community that says, hey, let's keep it practical. Let's go ahead and show you that you can do these things. And yes, it can be very complex, but you can start with those smaller steps and mm-hmm. then work forward. Um, you know, I can't afford a, a 24-inch plane wave, but I can work with Telescope Live to get that kind of data, which is outstanding. That's exactly what we go for. We're not trying to compete with what you're doing at home. We're trying to say this is something that's in addition to what you are working on yourself. And, you know, it can be very challenging sometimes with your own home setup. And it can be very challenging to process data as well. And so hopefully with the two together, you can really work on, you know, creating a very enjoyable experience from from this hobby. I was just peeking online here, and I see uh, the Dark Doodad Nebula. It's a cool new yes. name, and I think we should name it that. Um, it's about <laughs> about a year ago you took it. Uh, you yes. said that you, you might have had some opportunity to get more data on it. I don't know. Have you had the opportunity to collect more data for the Dark Doodad Nebula? So what, what we ended up doing is because there's a, I don't know if you see it now, there's a, there's a rather large cluster right. next to uh, the nebula itself. Um, and we acquired quite a bit of data with our 24 inch, uh, scope on it. Uh, and I'm not sure if we actually managed to get any more of the wide field of view, but it was definitely on my list to get some more data. Cause I think it's such a cool nebula. It's very, it's a dark nebula to begin with, which I, which I love. And it's really long and thin and it's just sort of different. Right. And so. Yeah, you've actually reminded me to go back and <laughs> to actually get more data on that. Uh, and I'm sh- I, I'm pretty sure that when we release that data set to our to our users, they they enjoyed it as well. And I think I want to add to that data and to 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 bring this uh, dark doodad nebula <laughs> to a bit more uh, a bit more spotlight because it it is super cool. I love dark nebulas. Yeah, it really is. It's it's extremely nice, and uh, I just happen to be. Looking forward to a, a trip of a lifetime on my end to end up going to uh, Chile and mm-hmm. the Atacama Desert to do some meteorite hunting, but it will also give me the opportunity to do some astrophotography. And this might have to be one of the uh, items on my list to actually yes. attempt to image. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great place. Uh, I, I've been to Chile before. It's it's outstanding there for for both uh, culture, country and astronomy. It's a fantastic place. Would you say that Chile is the number one destination on your bucket list, or is there someplace else that um, you think viewers or, or other people that want to image should go? Chile is the kind of holy grail of astronomy, right? There's, it's like, it's where you go if you, if you want a, a kind of out of this world experience. However, I mean, I've been to our site in Spain, you know, I've been to to lots of places around Europe where they have fantastic skies. And so I think a lot of people are under this impression of, you know, I need to travel across the world in order to, to especially for imaging, to get, you know, good data. But it's, it's not true. I mean, in every country, there is somewhere that is dark, that has, you know, some clear skies at some point throughout the year. I'm thinking of the UK here, you know, there is somewhere that will have a clear sky sometime. And, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, going to Chile is, is fantastic. And I, 
I can't wait to go back to to go back to our our telescope there to spend the night uh, uh, imaging with it in person. But um, you know, for the meantime, I can, especially where I live in Sicily, I could travel for an hour and be in you know a national park, image uh, the night skies there, and have a you know fantastic time all the same. Do you, with everything you've imaged, do you have a favorite target that you, whenever it's in season, you absolutely have, have to go back and, and acquire more data? I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of, of being in the, the Orion fan club. Every time Orion is up, I end up imaging Orion, even though it's like the most imaged target of them all. In terms of favorite target, though, mm, it's a tough one. I mean, at the moment, I've really been into solar imaging. That's been my, my kind of thing at the moment deep sky wise though i'd say something like the uh hamburger galaxy sombrero galaxy is also one of my personal favorites yeah i'm a kind of well-rounded guy i guess i like a lot of different targets uh, whenever they come up one of the things that you mentioned was uh, solar observing um mm -hmm. does the telescope live handle any of solar observing no unfortunately this is a we have a similar issue with planetary imaging in that the file size is so big that uh, it makes it very difficult in order to make it as easily available as um, as we have the, the current uh, network images. And so in that sense, you know, it's, it's, it's something we would like to implement, you know, personally, I would love to have uh, a solar scope, someone like Chile, that's constantly under clear skies, able to look at the sun, but um, yeah, it's, it's at the moment it's it's difficult, uh, but hopefully, you know, in time it's something I'd like to add to the the network. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the file size is definitely the problem at the moment. Yes, you have to collect a lot of video there for sure. Yes, gigabytes upon gigabytes. You mentioned earlier in the podcast that you were making your own software to do automation. There's a lot of off the shelf. <laughs> um, software that's already been produced, but one thing by doing your own proprietary software, you can customize it to your liking without giving any trade secrets away for your storage. Are you using like just server farms or are you using a service like um, Amazon or like Wasabi to store images or what are you, what are you doing? Yeah. So, so we're using, we're using Microsoft, their sort of cloud platform is what runs the entire uh, network and that's where we keep all our data. And so it's, uh, it's easily scalable. Um, and the reason we, we created our own automation and scheduling software is so that it can work a bit more seamlessly with, uh, with Microsoft, uh, cloud services. So in that sense, that's, that's what we, that's why we went for a proprietary software. So you're using Microsoft Azure? Azure. Azure yeah. Now, when you're doing your own, your own proprietary software, how do you, are you using, you obviously have to connect to the cameras, you have, obviously have to connect to the telescope mm -hmm. equipment. Are you using ASCOM or what are you using as far as your connectivity? It's a mixture of things. It depends on the, um, it depends on the manufacturer of the equipment itself um, and what they have in the way of connectivity. Um, for the most part, it would be through ASCOM. However, some mount controllers have proprietary software, proprietary controllers, which is which adds uh, adds some some difficulties. But it's something I, I'm I I didn't write the software myself. Marco is the the sort of main brains behind it. But yeah, we this is this is one of the reasons why we went with a proprietary software is to to make our lives a little bit simpler in that sense, in that we can actually have full control and customization customization over how we control stuff, how we gather the data, and how we distribute the data. And that's one of the reasons I think people use Canon cameras is because they're widely popular mm -hmm. and their back end, their SDK and their connectivity for different software is, I mean, it's amazing mm -hmm. support and they have a lot of, uh, yeah. a lot of technical writings as far as like people like Nina, Backyard EOS, APT. Um, that's probably why Canon is mm -hmm. one of the mm -hmm. most popular used cameras out there because it's, it's more widely supported. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, um, yeah, I mean, like, uh, personally, I think that now that ZWO are entering the space with more and more products, I think we may see a switch, a uh, heavy switch to, towards their products because of the ecosystem that they, they are creating in that, you know, you buy one of their products, it works with all their other products, and it's, you know, highly connectable to, say, as you, as you pointed out, Nina, ATP, any of the softwares, really. So it's it's... 
yeah, I mean, the same as Canon, they they produce stuff that that's you know easy to work with, which is really what people want. It's one one less step of frustration. Yeah, definitely. Knowing everything you know now and having your 12, 13 mm -hmm. years of experience as someone just starting out in the uh, in the hobby, what would be your biggest piece of information or biggest piece of advice that you would give them? I would say understand your equipment, the limitations and the capabilities, because once you know how your equipment works, how your equipment performs, you understand what's achievable with what you have. And then from there, if you want to plan to, to change something or to, to buy a new piece of equipment, you understand how it works with the rest of it. And I think that's really important that, you know, you understand what you can do with something um, so that in the, in the future, or when you go to, to use it, you understand how, you know, an input of this causes an output of, of, of whatever. And if you, you know, if you're trying to go for something and you say, okay, well, I know how my mount works. I know how my um, camera and telescope combination works, what the field of view is, what the kind of uh, images I expect, could expect from it. From there, it reduces a lot of issues and frustration in, uh, in, in trying to achieve a goal. And the same goes for the software as well. Understand the software that you're using. You know, before I, I, I use Nina for my setup in, in Sicily. And, you know, I spent a good, good while just going through the software before actually switching to it and saying, okay, this is something I want to use in order to, to acquire data. Because I wanted to understand if something went wrong or if something happened with the software and my equipment that I wasn't expecting, it would be one less frustration because I would kind of understand, all right, I kind of can see why this happened or I know how to navigate around the software in order to, to figure out what to do. Some good advice, I think. The other thing I like to always tell them is just keep it simple. A lot of people try to buy, keep it buy simple too as well. much yeah. too quick and they got they don't know, like you said, they don't know their equipment's limitations and they get frustrated because they can't get it all to work together so keep it simple and just get out there and and give it a go and of course start off with telescope live and of course yeah start off with telescope live we will we'll help you out <laughs> so somebody starting off on on your website they go to the pricing uh page they want to create an account is there a certain um plan that you suggest to people as they're just starting off the the silver plan is our most popular. That's uh, nineteen dollars a month, and it's kind of a an all access pass without actually um, committing too much in terms of uh, cost wise. So you can go on there and you can do a one click observation, and that basically just allows you yep. to. Does that allow you to grab pre existing data? Pre existing data and upcoming data in sort of a one hour uh, chunk. And then the credits, the credits can actually be uh, exchanged for one-click observations, mm -hmm. or they can use it to yeah. um, go after like more advanced, like if you want to actually pick out mm -hmm. a target. Yeah, exactly. And so with this, it's uh, a very flexible. You get enough credits to, to do as much as you kind of want. If you're a, if you're new to astrophotography, you can go on there and you can download uh, the majority of the one-click observations are half a credit, which is fifty cents. Uh, and so with 20 credits, you can access 40 hours and with, you know, the quality of our skies and our instruments, it, you can do so much with that data. And you said there's, there's over how many, uh, current photos? 150,000. It's about 3000 hours, 3000 hours of imaging time. So for $19 a month that basically they can, they can access all those 150,000 images. Exactly. Yeah. That, I mean. I don't, I don't see a better way to do it. I mean, it's definitely a good way to start. So I think we're, we're getting close to wrapping it up. If people want to follow you other than your telescope.live website, how can they, how can they find you on the internet? Uh, Alex.astropix on Instagram is, uh, is where I hang out. Uh, and then you can email me alex at telescope.live as well for any other kind of contacts. All right. I've definitely enjoyed it. Um, Dennis, I think is, has definitely enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thanks so much for uh, for coming on and having a chat with us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. And uh, hopefully, maybe in six months, we'll uh, we'll have you back on and talk about all the improvements and all the uh, additional telescopes and sites that you have on your telescope live. Yeah, we have a lot of cool stuff coming. So yeah, love to to catch up again in the future. All right. Well, thank you, Alex. Thank you so much. You just heard the Practical Astrophotography Podcast. 
Don't forget to follow or subscribe to be notified for upcoming episodes. Visit us at practicalastrophotography.com slash podcast. Until next time, here's wishing you clear skies. Oh, yeah.